I'm going to go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for how amazing you are for creating me. I thank you for how awesome I am. I thank you that I'm not like all these pagans who are here today. I thank you that I fast twice a week and and pray for this church. I thank you that my tithes are well above 10%. I thank you for all the other things I do that no one knows about. They're just awesome. Hmm. Even the sermon is going to be so awesome, Lord, because of my wisdom. And I thank you for that. Amen. All right. So, if I was serious, how many of you guys would feel incredibly uncomfortable and want to just leave? Yeah? I would too, honestly. Um, Today, this morning, we're going to be uh, talking about a man who had a similar prayer um, to that. And we're going to be talking on another man who had a, a pretty much the complete opposite kind of prayer. We're going to be in Luke 18 this morning, starting in verse 9. So you guys, if you want to open your Bibles to that right now. Um, I just want to remind you, uh, Jesus, when he tells parables, uh, this is our last week on parables, but parables have so much power, they have so much truth in them, um, and they're not just stories, they're they're. Um, creative narratives of ordinary life situations that tell kingdom truths um, that are meant for Jesus hearers and us today um, to transform our lives and to live uh, and become more like Jesus. So just remember the power that a parable has. Um, So like I said, we're going to be Luke 18, starting in verse 9. This parable is is only found in the Gospel of Luke. Um, And I'm going to start reading. He, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so after this first verse alone, we see what this parable is going to be about, who Jesus is talking to. Luke had a habit of of addressing the situation before he would um, write out the parables. And and in this case, Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees on their their, uh, self-righteousness. And so from the very beginning, we know we're going to be dealing with self-righteousness and pride and views toward others. But let's dig into the rest of it. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's that last line, that last phrase, that last verse is really what we're talking about. The one who exalts and has pride in himself and the one who's humble and trusts in God. 
So from the very beginning, we have these two characters. We have the Pharisee and the tax collector. And they, um, they go up to the temple to pray. And this would have been a daily practice most likely. There's usually um, two times a day that were the primary prayer times. Um, but this would have been something they do every day. Depending on the time of year and then the time of day, there would be sacrifices being offered um, for the sins of the people. Uh, and so this would be a time where people would go and, and seek um, to be justified in the eyes of God, to seek to be made right by making sacrifices and by making prayers to the Lord. And so before we go any farther, we need to talk about the Pharisee and the tax collector because honestly, these words for us don't mean the same they do for Jesus' first hearers of this parable. You see, Pharisees... Um, we tend to think, especially if we grew up in the church, like, oh, they're the bad guys. They're the, they're the guys that Jesus always, you know, critiques. They're the guys who, who uh, hated Jesus and, and ended up having a, a, a role in killing him. And while that is true, um, there's a lot of Pharisees who are great people, humble people. And the view of the Pharisees by the average person hearing this parable would have been as respected leaders and teachers in the community. In fact, the, probably the best comparison I could say is, is a minister. So imagine a minister coming to a church, a minister coming to a temple. So me or Greg or Ken or Adam, the minister comes into the temple. So that's the image they would have seen. They didn't see the bad guy. They didn't expect this Pharisee to, to pray this prayer. And then we look at the tax collector. And, and again, I mean, I don't think any of us love taxes, and I don't think any of us love the IRS or any or paying taxes, but I don't think that we get to the point of, of hatred of that, those things compared to in this day, what it would have been like. You see, tax collectors collected taxes for the Romans, the enemy, uh, the ones who had oppressed Israel, the ones that Israel was praying for a Messiah to free them from. So they collected, collected taxes for the enemy, and they were viewed as traitors. Not only that, they would oftentimes charge interest and, and go above and beyond and, and be the middleman and take a bunch of money for themselves as well. So they would cheat people and they would rob and steal. So the, these enemies, these traitors, they, they were the most hated of among the Jews. And so when I was thinking and praying through what would this look like nowadays, who, who could we resonate with? And Not a direct parallel, but, but a few ideas I came up with is if a prostitute or a porn star would come in to this church or come into the temple and pray. Or, or maybe an, an abortion doctor, a doctor who kills babies, comes into this church. Most Christians in, in our Christian culture are uncomfortable with those people. And that's putting it lightly. A lot of them are hated, despised, they're foreigners to us. But that is the kind of reaction that the tax collector would have had in the eyes of these people hearing this parable, that that sinner, that enemy, that terrible person is coming into the temple, person who I don't like at all. And then my, my minister is in the temple, in the church. And so we see this, this the beginning of this contrast that we're going to see is, is flipped upside down by the end of it. But, but let's dig into... Let's dig into to the Pharisee, his reaction, the way he prayed. So I'm going to read again. The Pharisee, 
standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. And so the first thing we see said about the Pharisee is that he's standing by himself. Now, some translations say he's praying by himself, praying to himself, praying about himself. But the best Greek construction, as far as translation goes, is standing by himself. And what that means is that he set himself apart in a way where everyone would be looking at him, probably in the center of the temple court, so that when he offered his prayer, people would be seeing him as this righteous man. And he starts with his prayer, God, I thank you. Now, normally, whenever you hear those words, especially in in the Hebrew um, Old Testament or the scriptures, normally when you hear those words, they're very, um, they start a prayer of thanksgiving or a psalm of thanksgiving. You look in the psalms and it's very common to to have that kind of um, beginning to a prayer um, by the psalmist. And so we, we see this, that and the hearers, again, think as hearers of Jesus' day, they are like, oh, my minister's praying. I thank God. But then he goes on and, and, and he says that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so we see this twisting of normally you thank God for all the good things he's done. But this guy starts thanking God for how awesome he is, just like how I prayed to open us. Not only that, but we see, he says, I I fast twice a week. Now, that may not seem like a big deal. Leaders should be fasting a lot um, if they're in a position of, of, of leadership in ministry. But we have to understand it was only required for Jews to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so when he's saying this in his prayer, he's saying, wow, I fast twice a week. Look how awesome I am. I go so far above and beyond. That's how righteous I am. The same, same thing is the case for the tithes. He says, I give tithes of all that I get. Now, you know, that seems like, oh, that, that's great. And it is good. But for, for Jews, the only three things that you were required to tithe on were grain, wine, and oil. So 10% of that Goes to, goes to God. The rest of it, it's up to you. But this guy's like, I tithe on everything. That's how above and beyond I go. And so as he's saying these things, as he's praying these things, we see this comparison to others that I'm better, and we see that he's doing these things, all these extra things, and, and taking pride in those things. And that's exactly what the tax collector does not do. Verse 13. But the tax collector, the porn star, abortion doctor, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so the, the posture of the tax collector we see standing far off. Now, what does that mean? It means that he didn't want to go near the other people. He, he wanted to separate himself because he didn't see himself worthy enough. So he was hiding in the back of the temple court, or however you want to say that. And so he automatically has this posture of, I am, I am a sinner, which we see when he prays. 
He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, beating your breast in that day, beating your chest would have been something that only mostly women would do. It was a sign of, of deep, deep emotional stress, despair, turmoil, inner turmoil. And so when men did it, it made it that much more amplified because it wasn't very common. So he is so distressed about who he is and what he does and his sins. And he says, God, be merciful to me, sinner. And, and the word for mercy there is actually the word in Hebrew to cover in the Septuagint. But it's the idea that, that there's nothing I can do about this sin. I deserve judgment. I deserve not to be justified. So Lord, please have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and here's the conclusion of this parable. Jesus saying this, I tell you, this man, the sinner, went down to his house justified that day rather than the other, the Pharisee, the minister. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, again, we, we just see this, this stark contrast between the two accounts of the two different characters in this story. And I've come up with a couple, um, kind of like, think of it as two-sided coins. Two big statements with what to do and what not to do. And they play into each other. And so I'm going to share this with you right now. The first one, we must not compare ourselves to others. Rather, we must look to God first, approaching him with radical humility and gratitude. We must not compare ourselves to others. So the, the first part of this, comparison. This is something that we see the Pharisee, the respected leader, do. He's saying, look at all the things I've done, and look at these people who I'm not like. That's his whole attitude. It's a very self-centered putting down of others. And so I want to say, I mean, the more I study this, the more I live life, I'm convinced that comparison is death. Now, I want to, I want to qualify that. When I say comparison, I'm not talking about, oh, my hair is brown and your hair is blonde or black. That's a, that's a reality. That, that's true. It is a comparison. But I'm talking about value statements. Whenever you make, when you say, I'm better than this person or I'm worse than this person, that's what I'm talking about when comparison is. I'm convinced that that is the root of death and, and, and the root of pride. You see, I think comparison is the death of the spiritual life. When you start comparing yourself to others and be like, wow, they know God so much more or they know God so much differently and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as good as that and God doesn't love me as much. Or on the flip side, like I'm so much better than them, they're just pagans, kind of like I said earlier. It's, it can be the death of a friendship because of jealousy, competition. It can be the death of a marriage because of lust and adultery. And ultimately it could just lead to physical death. And so we see this happening in the Pharisee. And so I, I want to urge you guys, please, if you have a tendency to compare yourself to others, we need to address that. We all do it in different areas. But we have to tackle that. And instead, we need to 
look to God first, approaching him with radical humility and gratitude. And, and looking to God first, in my mind, is the idea, okay, I'm going to compare myself to God instead of others. Looking to God first, who he is, who he says I am. And so when we look to God first, when we see his face, when we study his scriptures, we ultimately come to the conclusion that we are sinners. We don't measure up. Our God is so holy, so great, so powerful. We just don't measure up. But we also see through scripture and through ultimately Jesus Christ, the grace and the love that he gives to us. And if we are able to stop comparing ourselves to others and saying we're better or worse than others, then what happens is we start looking at God and what he says about us, and it reshapes the way that we see ourselves and others. We start seeing ourselves as valued members of God's family. We start seeing others as valued members of God's family. And so it it unites us in our weakness, in our humility. And naturally, when we understand that we, don't, we miss the mark, that from that springs thankfulness, gratitude, just a heart of love. When we receive grace and we receive love from the Father, and when we humble ourselves in order to receive that, and we're not too proud to receive that, then it flows through us into others, and it affects our lives. The second, the second thing is we cannot trust in our own achievements and abilities. Instead, we must recognize our desperate need for God. Again, we see, we see the Pharisee, we see the minister, the, the prideful, self-righteous one, trusting in the things that he's done. Trusting, oh, I, look, I do this, I fast so much more than I need to. That's how awesome I am. I tithe so much more. I'm so holy. And so we see this Pharisee relying on, on what he's done. He uses the word I five times. It's all about him. Things he's done. But in contrast, we see this this tax collector, this sinner who has this desperate need for God, he knows that he cannot be made right. He cannot possibly be made right on his own in the things that he does. And he is crying out to God because he knows the only way this ends well is if God has mercy and grace on me. And so we, we see that we can't rely on the things we do We can't rely on the legalistic checklists we make. It doesn't ultimately matter how much we read our Bible or pray. If we're doing it with a heart, it's just a checklist. It has to be in response to God's initiation of his radical love and grace in our lives. And the fact that The sinner left justified. The sinner left made right in the eyes of God because of his attitude of humility. And we see see this comparison of works and legalism and grace all throughout Scripture. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Galatians 2, 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Romans 3, 20 through 24, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We can't do this on our own. Nothing we can do. No spiritual exercise we can do justifies us in the eyes of God. It is only our heart that is turned toward him in absolute humility and need that acknowledges the fact that we can't do it. I'm worried about this country, this church. Later on in this chapter, we see, starting in verse 18, there's a rich ruler who comes to Jesus, and he's like, what can I do to earn eternal life. And Jesus gives him a list of things that in the law. He's like, I've done those. He's like, oh, but Jesus is like, one more thing. Give everything you have to the poor. And then come and follow me. And he's making a direct contrast between this rich guy and his disciples who have left their families and left their belongings to come follow him as his disciples. And the rich guy, when he heard it, he left and he was sad because he, he couldn't do it. He couldn't surrender everything. Jesus says this in response. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Regardless of our financial situation, monetarily, as Americans, we are in the top 10% of the world as far as wealth. Regardless, we have all of these resources. We have all the knowledge of the ages in our culture, all these connections. We have the Bible in 20 different translations when some don't have it in one. We have no excuse. We are rich in knowledge and money. There's no reason why we can't know these things. Ignorance is not an excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse for us. We have to be willing to lay down the things we have and realize that none of this matters. It is only the grace of God that can save me. And it is only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that does. So also when we have this desperate need, we have this picture of complete surrender and humility from this sinner, this tax collector. And I think the best, the best picture, the best 
way to put it is actually not in my words, but in the words of Scripture. And it's the verses that follow it right afterwards. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 18. Now they were bringing even infants to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. I think we'd be naive to say and think that, that Luke didn't intentionally put this immediately following the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Because in children and in their inheritance of the kingdom of God, we see a picture of true humility. We see a picture. I'm, I am not a father yet. Many of you are, are moms and dads. So I encourage you to look to your kids. They're completely dependent on you for food, for shelter, for discipline, for wisdom. Completely dependent. Many of them innocent. They don't really worry because they trust you. Children trust their parents. In fact, it's really our, over time, we're the ones who teach them to worry about things. And so we see this picture of the children being the ones that inherit the kingdom of God. And a warning that if we're not like children, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the image I want to leave you guys with this morning is this image of our father walking alongside us. Of a dad or of a mom walking alongside their kid, holding their hand, guiding them. And the kid, not really caring, trusting his parents, trusting the guidance, being completely dependent and surrendered in a kind of innocence and a trust that is really hard for us as adults to mirror. That is humility. That is radical need for God. And that's the picture that we need to take. We need to be like children and realize that without our Father, we are lost. And so we're going to get to a point right now, and it's going to be, um, I mean, it's a really cool moment, honestly, it, but it might make a few of you uncomfortable. What we're going to do is there's going to be a prayer put up on the screen, and we're going to s- contrast the prayer I started with, with with just a prayer of humility, and we're going we're gonna to pray it together. We're going to read these words aloud, and I'm going to encourage you guys, those of you who can, to do it kneeling. The band's going to come up right now, and we're going to respond. But, Danny, you can throw up the, the prayer. But this prayer, uh, based roughly off Psalm 51, I can't see a better picture in the Bible of, of a man who screwed up than David. He committed adultery, he lied, and he killed a guy. And Psalm 51, we see this picture of, of him coming before God Acknowledging God's goodness, His grace, and begging for mercy. Acknowledging the fact that He's a sinner. And in Psalm 51, 7, I think it's 7, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, 
will not despise. God wants us in our brokenness. He doesn't need the things we do, although those things do honor him. He wants us in our brokenness, in our broken spirit, in our broken soul. So I'm going to kneel, and I encourage those of you who can to do that. If not, outstretch hands, faced up, or you can raise your hands and surrender. Whatever that looks like for you, we're going to read this prayer together, this prayer of humility, and then we're going to respond. So pray this with me. Our Father, who is closer than the air we breathe, we thank you for who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing even now. We come and acknowledge our brokenness before you. We have fallen short. We have sinned against you. Have mercy on us, O God. According to your steadfast love, your abundant grace, and your great mercy, purify our hearts and cleanse our broken souls. Forgive us our sins and restore to us the joy of our salvation. Forgive us when we look down on others and not to you. Forgive us when we trust in our own righteousness. May our hearts be humble, and may we as children come before you trusting you in simple faith and humility, surrendering our control, and depending on you in every area of our lives. Guide our wandering path and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. As we uh, respond in worship, feel free to continue kneeling and praying. If, if, if any of you need to come up and talk to me um, and pray, I, I'd, be, I'd love to pray with you. If pride is a significant struggle in your life, um, which it really is for all of us, I think, on some level, um, come up, talk to me. If not, feel free to keep kneeling, keep praying. But let's sing together um, this song as a response. confess 